Oh my gosh, Hannah's cat has literally just <laughs> jumped. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 187 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have a running injury, a climbing injury and an eating injury. Who says women can't have it all? Exactly, exactly that. So the running injury is my Achilles, the climbing injury is a finger scuff, which is more painful than it sounds. And the eating injury, please someone send me a carer immediately, is I burned my lip on some soup. I felt sure that was going to be some sort of pizza injury. You know, when you get like the bit between your two front teeth, like the roof of your mouth on hot cheese. Mm. I felt Mm. sure that's what was coming. Why was the soup outside my mouth and not in it? No one knows. (laughs) It's not the worst food-based injury I've ever had, to be fair. Oh, you're going to have to expand on that one, please. What is the worst? I once ate so much of that black bomber cheese that I got a massive blood blister on the roof of my mouth and I couldn't talk for about two hours. Yeah, my mate lost a tooth to a crisp. Mm, Yeah, see? Also, how? (laughs) Just a really hard crisp and a really soft tooth. The hardest crisp in the world and the softest tooth. Wow. My mum has a crown. One of her front teeth is a crown. And uh, about once every five years, she'll ring and go, oh, God, it's a nightmare. My crown's fallen out. And I'll say, what were you doing? It's always like, oh, I was having some crusty bread. <laughs> I'm like, why, Mary? Why? I think five years is the, the statute of limitation on my mum remembering. <laughs> not allowed a baguette. <laughs> not sweet, crusty bread. Yeah. Oh, why don't we have more baguettes? This is why. Brexit. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'd like to be congratulated for not stinking up your Twitter feeds with me bragging about how good I am at Wordle. How good are you? Yeah, pretty good, 100%. Oh yeah, I've got 100%. What, first time? Or just 100% you get it within... No, that's like my rolling score oh, okay. is 100%, but my, my average is three. That's pretty good. Oh, mine's three. I got is it in it? two today. Well, there you go, you are really good at Wordle then. I reckon mine's probably four. But we're not bragging about it. We are now. Except on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> it's surprisingly addictive, isn't it? I didn't know what it was until like a week ago. I finally gave in and was like, what the fuck is this? Jane, Jane Hill explained it to me. And now I'm basically addicted and have introduced my mum to it, who is also kind of addicted. So It's good. It's a nice snack-sized little quiz. I just wish there were more. No, uh, no. it's snack-sized. Yeah. That's the joy of it. If there were more, Jen, I wouldn't be here now. Well, exactly. I'd be, like, <laughs> I'd be like, my eyes would be like burning. Well, I would be here. But only only in physical presence, yeah. I'm Jen Offord and I'm delighted to report that my mum thinks my book is good. Was that just one word feedback? No, she actually <laughs> was a bit more... Uh, her feedback was a bit better than that. But, um, you know, I'm glad that my mum doesn't think my book because that would be really yeah. bad, wouldn't it? Available to pre-order now via Waterstones. Thanks very much. It's called The Year of the Robin. Thank you. <laughs> Hannah, do you remember when we started Standard Issue as a magazine and your mum went to the wrong website and it, it was done yeah. by some mad conspiracy theorist, basically yeah. on an Etch-A-Sketch for what we could work out? <laughs> <laughs> or do you remember when I was on the telly? I was on the actual telly with Sarah at Hay Festival. Hay. the Hay yeah. Festival. And I, I said to my parents, I'm going to be on the telly. You're actually going to be able to watch it on your actual television. And the feedback from my parents were, my mum said, well, your dad lasted about 10 minutes, but I sat all the way through it. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. High praise indeed. Yeah. Later on, journalist Hazel Davis gets on the Zoom to author Jen Ashworth to talk unreliable narrators listening to your own books and Jen's latest book, Ghosted, shortlisted for this year's Portico Prize. 
I'll be chatting to playwright Athena Stevens about her play The Diagnosis, which kicks off the new Fizzy Sherbet podcast this week, and about whether were it possible to see into the future we'd actually want to. In Jenny Off the Rocks, I'm talking expectations and deportations. See what I did there? As I chat all things Australian Open. More than one deportation, who knew? Wowzers. Plurals. And in Rated or Dated, we visit the stool capital of America as we watch Christopher Guest's 1996-1997 Amdram mockumentary Waiting for Guffman. But first, bring your own bottle. Fuck it. Bring your own strategy. (laughs) It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Coming up, statues by paedophiles. Should we leave them be or smash them with hammers? Tell us what you think by texting hammers or I endorse nonces to the following number. What camp are you in, Hannah? Yeah, I'm in camp. Is there a third option? You know, <laughs> I'm in camp Is nuance. There... Yeah, if, if camp nuance exists. I mean, yeah, it completely bothers me that uh, the conversations that I've seen, and if people don't know what this is about, this is about someone vandalising the statue that was done by Eric Gill, who is a self-confessed paedophile, or was a self-confessed paedophile. The statue of Prospero at the front of the BBC was by Eric Gill and has been damaged by protesters hitting them with a hammer. And anyone who says, but, but immediately is oh so you uh so you support paedophiles do you and yeah oh dear it's tricky isn't it because i would see that well that's the point it is well yeah i mean i would see that as a very different scenario to for example saying we're not going to celebrate like slave owners and things like that it's different isn't it yeah yeah but also because and i know people don't like the slippery slope argument but you have to ask at what point is it acceptable? Is it only with statues by paedophiles? You know, will there be other things that we will then say is acceptable to damage public Well, art? I think it's very interesting. I just think the argument about, you know, separating the art from the artist, etc., etc., is I just think it depends very much how we happen to feel about them. Because it's not applied consistently, is it? No, no, not at all. Right, so on to a, an even less cheery topic, if you can believe mm. it. Two weeks in a row talking about Boris Johnson for me, for which I can only apologise. With any luck, he'll have resigned by next week. I mean, he absolutely (laughs) definitely won't. And I say that with what I really hope is the required level of confidence for the universe to sweep in and make me look stupid. Remember that time Hannah said Boris Johnson wouldn't resign as PM and 10 minutes after the podcast went live, he stood down. Come on, sweet lady fate, make me look like a twat. It would totally be worth it. Agreed. Boris standing down would mean that two rumoured operations had failed. Operation Save Big Dog, which it's alleged is designed to find junior members of staff to take the fall. And Operation Red Meat, designed to use populist measures to distract us from his flagrant disregard for the very rules the rest of us were trying our best to adhere to, despite the most trying of circumstances and the basic human instinct to do things like see people you love before they died. Okay, people, I know you're angrier than you thought it was humanly possible to be, and we can't bring your loved ones back, but hear me out. We've sacked three interns and the military have started patrolling the channel to turn away migrants. It's like all those parties never happened. It is the most like disgustingly 
bait thing you could ever do. Uh, I don't know if you've looked over there, Hannah. Um, if you look over there, yeah. you'll actually see some illegal immigrants. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, please, with the best will in the world, go fuck yourself, Operation Save Big Dog and Operation Red Meat and Operation <laughs> Save Big Red Dog Meat, an upcoming plan to give free kebabs to anyone who promises to vote Tory in the next election. Johnson is also planning, reports suggest, to make number 10 a booze-free workplace. So keep your eye out on the government's eBay account if you're looking for a cheap wine fridge. There's too much to say here. Indeed, I will be saying more things in this week's Bush Telegram. But I want to finish here by saying two things. Number one, you can sign up for that very mail out at our website, standardissuepodcast.com. And number two, Johnson is categorically, resolutely, I state my reputation <laughs> for political know-how on this, not going to resign. Oh my God, we live in hope. Fingers crossed. We live in the yeah. endless hope. Just, I saw Rachel Johnson. His I mean, sister. there's so much interesting stuff yeah. on this. But I saw Rachel Johnson on LBC. Yeah. And her, her line of defense appeared to be, well, he didn't invite me to any work piss house. And I thought, is that, is that normal? I don't, I don't know. I don't understand that defence. It doesn't really... Well, that's what I mean. It, would it be normal for you to invite your sister to a work piss up? Does that mean... If, if, you're, if we're on the piss, Jen, if you're and my brother isn't there, does it mean it's not a work piss up? Well, is there's no logic there to isn't it. Really, no, she's no trying to say to it. it couldn't have been a party because she wasn't invited. Does he invite her Basically. to all of his parties? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I, I I look at that, Jen. It's not a party unless I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be right, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking awful, isn't it? It's just awful. What an absolute bell end of a man. Just resign. Just resign. It's just, it's it's untenable, isn't it? You have, I, don't, I think it was even a Tory who said this. Andrew yes. Bridgen, I think, said that he had no moral authority to lead the country anymore. And well, I agree with him. Yeah, I mean, so for the second time, he's sort of pissed the Queen off. That's some going, Oh, isn't my it? God. He's pissed the Queen off. You can imagine, I think, I can imagine anyway, that the Queen doesn't have much time for him, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, the things that the royal family supposedly stand for, like leadership. Yeah, well, and, that's well, back to the Eric Gill conversation. Yeah, but, you know, he doesn't have a fucking ounce of it, does he? Like, absolutely nothing, so. No. I mean, I, I, the other thing is, who would be PM? It's not like there's going to be anyone who's better. I just that feel problem, like yeah. there needs to be repercussions for this sort of behaviour. Well, for all of it. For all of it. This is just the fucking tip of the iceberg, isn't it? What about all of the corrupt shit that is going on that we know is happening, that keeps like coming to the fore, that keeps being revealed, that judges keep saying is illegal, and yet they're still there? Yeah, it's yeah, it's I, I feel that there should have been consequences like three years ago now, but it's yeah, it's a terrible situation that we find ourselves in. Anyway, while we're on the subject of what the press has been gleefully calling booze for the last 10 or more <laughs> days, and I've enjoyed that. It's not just poor old Wilf Swing that's come to harm as a result of pandemic drinking. 
The Guardian reported this week on data published by the government's Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, highlighting the rise in people drinking at home during the pandemic. And according to the data, 8 million people were drinking wine, beer or spirits to a degree that is harmful to their health by the end of October 2021, which equates to 18.1% of the adult population in England, which is quite a lot. That is a rise from 12.4% in February 2020. Mm. Now, that might sound like a bit of a no-brainer. If fewer people were drinking in the pubs, then probably more people were drinking at home, right? So, yeah, what's the fuss about? Well, Professor Julia Sinclair, the chair of the Addictions Faculty at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, told PA Media that drinking at home was one of the reasons for this rise, highlighting that the absence of a sort of closing time which would normally force people to curtail their alcohol intake obviously that's not there so people just drinking for longer and longer and longer because they can essentially so when asked if this could be considered the new normal she said that the best most realistic scenario is that the higher risk drinkers go back over the next probably five years to normal risk drinking so basically just what they were doing before the pandemic yeah And what we're going to see is that some people who were perhaps drinking at a higher risk but weren't physically dependent will have pushed themselves now into being physically dependent, which is pretty bleak. Yeah, and I tell you what else is bleak. I mean, when you look at how many people in this country are living in poverty, I mean, that's such a huge figure Mm. that, you know, you can't even say this is like middle class drinking. This would be across the Mm. board. So people are going to end up. And I say this with all sympathy and no judgment. People are going to end up spending money on booze that they just can't afford. And that's that's when the spiral happens. That's when it becomes shit for everybody. It becomes shit for their whole family. It becomes shit for everyone around them. Because having a drinking habit is really, really expensive. Mm. I suppose the other thing, obviously not to say that all people who drink are also, you know domestic abusers or anything but i wonder Mm. what the the venn diagram looks like in terms of the rise in domestic abuse for example yeah what the correlation is between those two things you would imagine there would be some correlation right yeah i'd imagine the number of phone calls that nakoa is getting has gone up as well because yeah it, it it affects everybody it's very difficult to get anyone to have a conversation about booze just write something vaguely controversial about booze on Twitter and wait to see everyone just get really defensive about it. Because I think people see it as like a, a civil liberties issue. And, and by that, I mean, not literally that they care about civil liberties, but they're like, hang on, the government hasn't got a right to tell me what I can do. I'm in control mm. and, and all of that stuff. And you're like, well, yeah, but it's, it becomes damaging to the entire ecosystem around you, your family, your friends, your workplace, all of those things. Yeah. Well, do you want a bit of good news? Yes, please. After that. Well, (laughs) here we go. Sport England has launched a new £5 million fund, which it says will use sport and other physical activities to unite communities and tackle inequalities. The pool of cash, which has been funded by the National Lottery to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Platinum? Wowzers. She's She's been around. still, Still soldiering on. Anyway, it will make awards of between 300 and 10,000, 10,000 pounds to community organisations in support of new projects which provide opportunities to become physically active. The cash can be used for facility hire or coaching costs or small capital improvements. 
to facilities and buildings. If you think that you have a project that might qualify, you can find out more at sportengland.org. Money for sport. Time to get that rounders team together. Yeah, Yeah, let's do it. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Hey, Hannah, what were you doing on December the 23rd? Um, I reckon I was probably thinking about how crap Christmas <laughs> might be. You might have been panic buying last minute Christmas presents or waiting. Yeah, I mean, yes. That yeah, too. waiting for delivery of last minute Christmas presents. Yes, actually, that yeah. too. Yeah. You might have been hitting the refresh button constantly on the BBC's rolling COVID coverage to see if you were actually allowed to go to your mum's for Christmas. Well, you have to do something while you're waiting in for a delivery. Exactly. You might have been scouring the NHS website to see what the self-isolation rules were before you headed off for a BYOB work event at a mate's uh. house. <laughs> I'll tell you what I bet you weren't doing on that particular day the 23rd of December 2021, was checking to see if the government had published any strategies. I wasn't, and I feel like I should have been Jen. (laughs) Well, don't we all? I mean, I I knew you weren't because we've already talked about this, and neither were me or Mickey, just to be clear on that. I mean, we could probably count on not very many pairs of hands the number of people who were waiting with bated breath to see whether or not the first ever women's health strategy for England would be published that day, nine months after the call for evidence informing said strategy was launched. And if I may, I'd like to say thank you to journalist Vicky Spratt, who did in fact flag this up in an article for Refinery29. Yeah, well done. So the government received nearly 100,000 responses from just you know, normal women like you or I, Hannah, across the country, and more than 400 from organisations. And their stories, the report says, made for sobering reading, adding that the system must be reformed along with its core values so that the voices of this 51% of the population are heard. Big yes to that. In announcing the publication of the vision for the Women's Health Strategy for England, the government referred to decades of gender health inequality, something which we've all known about for, well decades, and of which Minister for Women's Health Maria Caulfield said that some revelations were shocking and added it is not right that over three quarters of women feel the healthcare service had not listened. You can read the whole document online by googling or you know whatever your search engine of choice is, Women's Health Strategy England, but among the government's ambitions listed in the document are that all women feel comfortable talking about their health and no longer face taboos when they do talk about their health and that all women feel supported in the workplace and can reach their full potential at work. Easy peasy, right? Why why has no one thought of this before, Jen? So how will they achieve this wholesale societal shift that they are suggesting, (laughs) I hear you ask? Besides these ambitions and woolly statements such as we will explore ways in which to improve awareness for care of and treatment for those suffering with severe symptoms of conditions such as heavy menstrual bleeding, endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome. I saw one actual tangible action in the document. Do you want to know what it is, Hannah? I'm kind of scared to ask, but okay. They are going to appoint a women's health ambassador. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? One. Yeah, just the one. To make all of those dreams a reality, they are going to 
appoint a women's health ambassador. So to carry the health hopes and dreams <laughs> of fifty one percent to do of the to population. do make all of the changes that they're promising in this document with <laughs> absolutely no indication as to how they would make them. Yes, yeah. good for her. Well done. Thanks, Department of Health. Any bets why they announced this on December twenty third? I wonder. Yeah, smash it with hammers. <laughs> I am here with Jen Ashworth, author of Ghosted, A Love Story, which has been nominated for the Portico Prize and is out on Scepter. She's also the author of A Kind of Intimacy, The Friday Gospels and Notes Made While Falling, among others. And she's Professor of Writing at Lancaster University. Hi, Jen. Hi, hey. So thanks for having me. Professor Ashworth. Can I call you Jen? (laughs) I would rather that you did. Excellent. Okay. Well, I need to, to, to quickly say that I powered through the audiobook of Ghosted, actually, because the, the, the book itself didn't arrive in time. And so I was listening to it, which was a really interesting experience because I don't tend to do that normally. I'm I'm definitely a book reader. So it left me a little bit broken, actually. And I don't know how when I would have felt. When, when you're reading, you want to flick forward a bit sometimes, yeah. don't you? And check that everything's going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I listen to loads of audiobooks and I love them, but you kind of have to go at the speed of the narrator. It's a real different yeah. experience. Yeah, it really is. How do you, I mean, just to, to jump straight into that, really, how do you feel as an author listening back to an audiobook of your novel? Do you do you ever think, oh, this isn't how I wanted it to be read or interpreted, or, or do, you, do you enjoy it just as much? Oh, yeah, it's always a really interesting moment. I love the narration. I haven't listened to the entirety of Ghosted, and um, I kind of know what happens next, so... <laughs> So the appeal is different. So I've listened to samples. I've listened to bits here and there. And I love what she's doing with it. Mm. I think as I'm writing the book, I read it aloud. And that's part of my practice. I read everything that I write out loud Mm. over and over and over again to try and get voice right. But the Mm. point of getting Laurie's voice is that she doesn't sound like me. If I hear my own voice as I'm reading the work aloud when I'm writing, I edit it, I cut it. So actually the experience of listening to the audiobook and realising that there's a strangeness to it, there's something really unfamiliar about it to me. And I like that. That's great. Because I've seen you perform live, actually, and I've seen you read live. And so when I read um, Kind of Intimacy, I kind of read it in your voice, or your voice was reading it to me, which was quite interesting. And then when I listened to this, to to Ghosted, I thought, well, that's not her voice. So that was quite an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah. That was a bit, a bit of a strange experience. So I think it's fair to say, we'll talk a little bit about Ghosted. It's fair to say that Laurie is a is an unreliable narrator without giving anything else away. Is that how you see it? Or is she a broken narrator? What? How do you, how would you describe her? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, with my professor of writing hat on, I'd say all narrators are un- unreliable mm. one way or another. Mm. But the way in which Laurie is unreliable and I don't think she's setting out necessarily to deceive the reader out of a kind of nastiness or a a, I don't know I heard someone on Twitter the other day say she was a really unpleasant character and I'm really still a bit pissed off about it because I think she's lovely (laughs) I do think that she has a really slippery relation to the facts of her own life she begins the novel by telling us what happened 
and the last time she saw her husband, her husband's gone missing. She's telling us about the last morning she saw him and she's contrasting what happened with what she told the police. Mm. She said, um, I didn't tell the police that at the time, but I am telling you now. And she's always pretty clear there are a, a couple of possible versions of the stories that she's dealing with. Mm. And there's another story, a story that lurks underneath everything yeah. that she says, that she just cannot, cannot articulate. And I think... Laurie's unreliability is completely the key to her character. She so desperately wants to understand why her husband has left her mm. and where he has gone and why their marriage fell apart. And she so desperately wants to understand why almost all of her relationships have got these awful fault lines in them. You know, mm. she finds it very hard to be around other people. But understanding those things would mean admitting truths about who she is and about what has happened to her. She she just can't bear. She's trying to kind of get to the truth and avoid pain at the same time, mm. which is impossible. And I hope mm. makes her sympathetic, even if she is um, in her suffering a little unpleasant now and again. Yeah, I didn't find her. I you know some of the things she does and says are unpleasant, but I I found her extremely relatable actually, which maybe says more about me. But I think <laughs> if I was in her position, I, there'd be things that I wouldn't want to tell people immediately. There'd be lots of information, and I feel like aren't we all a bit like that? Really, just yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, the idea of, like, narrating someone telling the story of their own life that is in a novel shape, it's a weird thing. You know, we, we don't, you know, even when we write diaries or when we're, I don't know, on a date, talking to a friend in a therapy session, whatever this context is of us making some account for of our own life, we shape it in a particular way, depending on who is listening, what they've asked, what kind of relationship it is, what we want to achieve. And I don't think Laurie's um, kind of interest and, and, and addiction to doing that is remotely unusual. Mm-hmm. Things that have happened to her are unusual and mm-hmm. the way that she behaves in her distress might be unusual. But that not being quite able to be honest with yourself and people who you want to like you mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think that's kind of standard human stuff. Yeah, I th- oh, well, I think so, certainly. And and to go back to one of your other characters, Annie, in A Kind of Intimacy, obviously that they're quite different characters, but there's still mm. a real kind of desperate need to understand how other people behave and how one behaves, which I really relate to in a whole different way, in a probably worrying way as well, that just like looking at people in this perplexed way and saying, why do they, why are they doing that? And I think that I, yeah. that they think of me like this, that, that's obviously something that fascinates you then, people's perplexity. It is, it, is. it absolutely fascinates me. I mean, there are lots of questions that power novels and for the reader, maybe the question is what's going to happen next or what's she going to do next? It's a question to do with time, to do with plots, you know, that, that keeps the, the pages turning over. And, and those are great questions, and I love those questions. And also, what gets me to the page and what made me want to be a writer from when I was really young mm-hmm. is looking at other human beings and myself and thinking, why did you just do that thing? <laughs> what, what was going on in your head? And that question, you know, why did you do that? That's about motivation. What is going on in your head? That's about interiority. Um, it's about narration. These are kind of craft writing questions mm. and they definitely 
turn me into a novelist. <laughs> Let's go back to when you first started to want to become a writer, because I read a great article that you wrote in The Guardian about being a school refusenik, actually, which is as because yes. I'm a home educator and it really fascinates me, actually, that that, mm. that your story was quite interesting. So you said you, there was a great quote, something like you just wanted a blind eye and a library ticket or something, wasn't it? Was that? I did. <laughs> yeah, great. I very badly just wanted to be left alone. And did you always want to be a writer like all that whole time or did that come a bit later? I, I did always write from when I was really young. I've got stories that, you know, in my bottom drawer that I wrote when I was kind of seven, eight, nine. I've always been fascinated by by what happens when we read. I remember when I was quite young seeing my mum read something and seeing that she just wasn't in the room. She had the book in her hand and she was not in the room. She had gone somewhere else. And I remember experiencing that myself um, in libraries you know, a whole day passing. And, and I had a, you know, there was, there was lots of aspects of, of my growing up that were difficult, like mm-hmm. for many people. And, and the book's ability to carry you out of your life and to somewhere else was like a magic trick. And I wanted to do it. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn how to do that thing. So, yeah, I always wanted to be a writer. And I guess in those days when I was declining school and um, there were there was a time when I thought it was too late now I'm not going to be able can you imagine thinking it's too late at 13 I'm not going to be able to get my exams I'm not going to be able to go to university and those things felt almost prerequisites for being a writer you know my story worked out differently and I did do those things but yeah there was there was always a real tension for me between the kind of obedience of school and the adventure of reading and writing Mm. they just didn't quite go together for me looking back obviously now you've got quite a sort of glittering academic career in in the field of creative writing and you do a lot of academic research into writing do you think in hindsight do you think any of that was necessary would you be the writer without sort of denying any of your education so far would you be the writer that you would be without any of that could you have been um I think, I mean, there were other reasons that I, I was so kind of adamant about not going to school that were not really to do with school, but to do with what was going on in my family at the time. And I think if those like, aspects of my family life had been different, mm-hmm. I might have chosen to refuse or rebel or decline in a, in a different way. It might not have come out in that particular way. But, you know, as soon as I got to uni, Uni was difficult in a different way. I went to a really posh uni and it, it was it was amazing in some senses and really strange and inhospitable to me in others. Mm. But that adventure of reading and the autonomy that you get as your education progresses past kind of, you know, 12, 13, 14, um, I really valued. Mm. And it has impacted, my experience there has impacted on the way that I teach and, and how I teach. So, yeah, yeah don't, don't quite regret it, but I'm, I'm still curious about it. Yeah. The meaning that I have made out of that story for myself isn't fixed yet. <laughs> no, I like that. And you, you talk about your difficult upbringing. You've written before about growing up in a Mormon family and you wrote about that in the Friday Gospels. Was that something that you, because it, it, that to a, you know, to a writer, that's a complete gift. But did you avoid doing that for a while because it's too obvious or too much of a gift? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason the Friday Gospels was my third novel and not mm-hmm. my first. Yeah. I think approaching 
autobiographical experience and then fictionalising it. And the mm-hmm. Fairy Gospels is very much a novel. None of those characters are me or my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The plot isn't what happened in my life. But it was definitely based on a, a culture and a community that I knew really well and mm. had experienced. But I needed to leave. didn't really leave the church until I was about 16 or 17, and I didn't officially resign my membership until I was about 27, which wow. is when I was working on the Friday Gospels. And I think I needed that kind of distance to be able to to look at it, to see the funny side, yeah. um, to, to, to make a different kind of sense out of it, to write a novel that was more about asking questions than doing a hatchet job. Hmm. And and I hope that that's what, what the novel is. This idea of, um, you know, interacting with, with faith or with faith communities and spirituality, it's it's still of interest to me. It was a big part of um, Notes Made While Falling. Hmm. It, it kind of sneaks into my other books. So it is a part of my childhood that while I certainly did not enjoy as a adult who is a novelist I've learned to be grateful for (laughs) that's a good answer I like that um something else I want to to talk to you about is you're writing about sex you write about sex in such a relatable way that in a really sort of that I mean just the idea of writing about sex to me just seems like horrific do you just find it easy do you just does it come out or have you had to think about that or kind of like (laughs) Do you know, I'm not sure there's too much sex in any of the other books, is there? I don't think mm-hmm. there is. I think Ghosted, I think there's probably... There's a couple loads of... of sex in that. <laughs> yeah, there's loads of sex in Ghosted. I guess it's a book about marriage, which, you know, I could not address without yeah. there being some sex, bad sex, and also lack mm-hmm. of sex. So so I needed to uh-huh. address all those. Did I find it easy? Um I was talking to a friend about this the other day. So writing good sex is mm. quite difficult mm. because what is it's very exposing. What's yeah. good for one person is <laughs> yeah. good for another person. And it's also dramatically quite difficult because if everyone has sex and they're all up for it and they have a nice time and they have their cigarette or their cup <sighs> of tea afterwards, there's not really anywhere to go. Yeah. But if sex is disappointing or there's something unexpected in some way or you know there's some kind of conflict around it then it is it is brilliant to write it's about vulnerability and it's about hiding and it's about people wanting things and it's about Mm. the horror of having to be vulnerable enough to ask for something Mm. total gift to a novelist (laughs) and it can also be very funny which I hope some of the sex is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's when you said that, you know, writing about the disappointments of sex, I, th- I would say that's probably easier than writing. I think you managed to write about it in a sexy and vulnerable and disappointing way, kind of all at once, which is what a lot of us feel, you know, all the time, isn't it, really? That sometimes it's a bit crap, and, but sometimes it's lovely, yeah. and sometimes it's lovely and crap at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's like the ordinariness of it that mm. I was I was really interested in. When, when I teach this, I, I ask my students to imagine Christmas dinner, and I say, you know, everyone knows more or less what happens at Christmas dinner, <laughs> and there might be, like, some local and regional variation, but <laughs> generally when someone says Christmas dinner, we've got a pretty good idea of what we're talking about. So maybe you don't need to describe, like, the Brussels sprouts and the crackers and the Christmas pudding too much. Maybe <laughs> instead we need to know what is different and unusual and special about this particular meal in this particular day. Um, and <laughs> I think that's quite an odd way of teaching the writing of sex, but it's, it's something yeah. that I thought I'm much more interested in 
I don't know, the parts where people, I don't know, the knickers get tangled up around their ankles or they get annoyed or mm. there's a point where Laurie is pretending not to have an orgasm. Yeah, that years. was amazing. Um, yeah, that was really like... like the the wow. weird kind of non-standard clumsy yeah. stuff because mm. I think it's so much more exposing of character. Mm, definitely. No, I, I really en- enjoyed <laughs> reading the sex scenes. Um, anyway, let's go and, and back to the Portico Prize, which you've been nominated for, which is for writers who are perfectly encapsulating what it's like to be in the North. How important is it to you? to Because obviously you're, you're from the North, you're from Lancashire, mm-hmm. aren't you? And, and, and so your books are all set there, aren't they? How important is that to you that you kind of evoke this sense of place? Is that just automatic or deliberate? I guess, I mean, I didn't set out with my first novel. I didn't have a plan that I was going to have a career writing novels set in Lancashire. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a specifically expressed ambition, but it was one that developed. I am really, really curious about what it is I don't know about the places that I think I know really, really well. So I kind of try and make the familiar strange and the the strange familiar, I guess. I mean, I had a review quite early on in my career. I think it was the second book that commented the first book set in Fleetwood Mm. and the second book, Cold Light, set in Preston. And the reviewer said something like, oh, you know, she has a talent that will take her far, maybe... Maybe one day as far as Blackburn. (laughs) It was like such a catty remark. And I thought, I wonder why the fact that I've written two books set in Lancashire, which is a pretty big county, Mm -hmm. why is that remarkable? Why is that interesting? Why is it maybe a slightly negative thing for me to have done? Why is there this kind of encouragement to to branch out when I started publishing people said are you going to move to London now but as if that would be a kind of progress yeah. that I would graduate mm. be in Northern in some way <laughs> um not everyone thinks that they don't but there was a kind of undercurrent to it and I became curious about it and it was maybe at the point of the writing the Friday Gospels where I thought no this is what I do these are the people that I write about these are the people that that I'm, I'm curious about and interested in and so for the portico to kind of recognize that the prize is about the spirit of the north and I think the diversity of what northernness can be I hope I've reflected it across my novels but it's definitely reflected in the long and short lists that you know we don't have kind of clogs and whippets and pies there's, there's lots and lots of versions of northernness so it's been a really really exciting ecosystem to be a part of as a as a writer oh that's cool thank you and just to close up really what are you working on next are you are you already on your next novel or are you kind of basking in the glory of this um no basking no very little basking is going on so i've been writing today i've been writing a short story and it is about a woman who wins a prize and she uses the money that the prize awards her to buy clones to live her life for her so that she can sit in a flat and do nothing. <laughs> and then she realises that she's going to run out of money. These clones are on a kind of higher purchase deal. And she's going to run out of money and she's trying to figure out, you know, how she can stay absent from her own life and she wants to kind of make some deal with the clones. And it's all going to end in a, in a quite bloody bloodthirsty way so that's what i've been working on today that's a short story where can we read that when can we read that it's coming out in an anthology with same tree press um next year as to glenn mark morris so i will 
put it on my Instagram and stuff like that oh, when nice. it comes out. I am kind of starting a new novel, yeah, and I'm I'm interested in writing about fathers and daughters, which I don't think I've done. I was going to say I don't think I've done it, and then all the fathers oh. and daughters in all my novels just suddenly ghosted. Is so about father and daughter, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> fathers and daughters. It's going to be about that, and I haven't decided what I'm going to do with lockdown. It's the trickiness for novelists writing now. Mm, yeah, no, you're right. Actually, that's it. I wouldn't mm. begin to think about that. But that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely talking to Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been good fun. Hello there, Hannah here to tell you about the next interview just coming up now. Fizzy Sherbert is a podcast series which started this Monday and you can listen to it wherever it is you do that. Probably the same place you're listening to this podcast now. A new episode will be released once a fortnight. These podcasts include a play recorded in front of a live audience and then a Q&A session. The first play, Diagnosis, was written by actor and writer Athena Stevens. And it tells the story of a disabled woman who wakes up one day to discover, like Cassandra, she can see into the future. And, like Cassandra, she is doomed never to be believed. So here's the chat I had with Athena, who, FYI, has the patience of a saint, given the amount of technical problems we were beset with in this interview. Your new play, Diagnosis, yesterday I was listening to it at a set of traffic lights. I was listening in my car and someone had to peep me. To move on at the lights because I was so engrossed. That's a good sign, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Chicago girl. I know traffic like <laughs> no one else. So. None of us can see into the future, and I'm, I'm happy to say that. I know some people claim that they can. But many of us can sort of see the future, and we can understand the frustration because, you know, maybe you're talking to a climate change denier, you're talking to an anti-vaxxer. You know, maybe you're talking to an addict or you're talking to a friend of yours that just has really, really bad taste in men and you can see the future and and they can't. So I wonder what it was that drew you to this topic and why now? So this even predates Brexit and Trump. Well, in spring of 2015, I was going, I think I can see how these big moments that liberals assume they have in the bag are going to turn out, and they're not going to turn out well. And I was very much shut down. I was told that I was being negative, and Brexit happened, and then Trump happened, and it took a lot of my energy not to go, I told you so. Mm-hmm. But I hope I didn't. But I think after I turned about 30, I really got a sense of being able to see and look at real possibilities that no one wanted to consider as possible. And that was really, really lonely. And I really struggled with If I don't say what I'm seeing, am I being complicit? Mm -hmm. Or do I stick my neck out to say what I think is going to happen, even though 
I don't want it to happen, and no one wants to hear about it, and at least be able to sleep well for a night knowing that I told the truth. Yeah, because I don't think anybody wants to be right in these scenarios. It's not about being right. It's about hopefully changing the end result, isn't yes, it? Yes, I think so, and I think... You know, we see that again and again in Greek mythology, but we see it in science, we see it with the covenant king. It's everywhere. If you really sit and look at the full picture, honestly, you get a very different sense than if you gloss over and don't look at things closely. You cover a huge amount in a really tight amount of time. 25 minutes? I think so. <laughs> you cover so much in that time. You talk about abuse by carers. You talk about spiking, dangers for women out in the outside world and in their own homes. You've... Well, uh, let me back up there for a minute. Do I cover a lot or is that simply the complexity of being a woman? Well, yeah, good point. That we are thrust into um, having to deal with all of that in 25 minutes. You have cerebral palsy. And your main character, she's in a motorised wheelchair, which does, in parts, drive the plot. But what I found really interesting about this is where, where it seemed really clear to me the frustration of... Speaking to authority and not being believed or being pushed aside. And that seemed really, really clear. I mean, that's that's an evergreen topic for the disability community, isn't it? That is an evergreen topic for many communities. I mean, from what we see with African-Americans and police violence mm. to women not being believed and not and really systemically being taught not to trust their gut and kind of shut their intuition down. I think, really, if you had to look at the underbelly of humanity, which a lot of people have that opportunity, but not everyone has to, has to, you can't turn it off and so you do see things that other people don't want you to see and you're right and that's not called prejudice that's called wisdom yeah question Athena if you could see into the future if that were possible would you take that option I don't know. I feel like I've seen an awful lot coming the past the years. Um, and it, a lot that people don't want to see coming in it is the weight. You know, I didn't say, oh, December 2021, there'll be this thing and we'll call it Omnicon and it will be a new variant. But if you have any basic scientific education, you need something about these lines becoming. And it's been really hard over the past few years. I think I would, 
even though I would probably grieve that choice daily, yeah, and for no other reason than the self-preservation. Yeah, I find the idea terrifying. I oh, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't even like making plans, to be honest. I, I don't like being tied to the idea that I said I would do something in two weeks' time, let alone, you know knowing what's going to happen in two weeks. Well, no. I'm an introvert, so I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> when you go, yeah, but I made that plan when I wasn't reading this book, and now it's raining outside, so I don't actually want to go out. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, I suppose it would be good if you could predict the weather, especially in this country. Yes, in this country. Absolutely. My family lived in Las Vegas, so the weather is pretty easy to predict. It will be hot and dry. What have the last few years been like for you? I mean, given you're you're an American, so have have you been able to go home at all? Uh, No, I've not. I've been here. I own... A flat here, and I have a cat here. So <laughs> when it looked like things were locking down, I went, Well, my life is here, and this is where I am. What has it been like? Been odd. I had a two year old, and her mom and dad living with me at one point. So I got really good at toilet training. <laughs> um, something that I consider to be my greatest achievement is surviving <laughs> lockdown with the two years. That wasn't mine. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, I'll say what everyone else is saying. It's been hard. It's been challenging. It's been mentally and emotionally challenging but it's also been really really nice i hate putting a silver lining and something so awful and so unnecessary and a lot of people have a lot to answer for in these deaths and illnesses and long-term disability but for me i feel like it's like the rest I got it very early on, and it lasted for a really long time. Mm. And I had to say, okay, well, I guess what I'm going to get done today is I'm going to eat and sleep, and that has to be good enough. Mm. So I think in that regard, it's been a real opportunity to be quiet. Mm. There's a new book out called Wintering, which I think is really important in terms of creating space for the season where it feels like nothing is going to get done and nothing is happening. Because I think I've at least learned over the past two years that that is as much a part of life as partying in spring and summer. It's the season where you kind of lie down and just survive. Mm. Yeah. 
I referred to you at the top as a, an actor and playwright, but that actually doesn't really touch the sides of everything that you're involved with. You are a very busy woman. So what can we look forward to next? Oh, gosh. One wonderful thing about this season has been being able to write without distraction, mm. particularly after my friend and her family left. Not a whole lot of writing got done with the two-year-old around, but that's okay. I learned other things. So I'm writing a lot, and also I'm hoping to do much more acting this year. That's all I can say about that. But I've really started to lay the groundwork from no longer my focus is as much on activism, but it's about art and creating and communication. It seems to me that that there is more space for more in diagnosis. Is is that a plan as well, or do do you are you just going to leave it like it is? No, I think it is a plan. I've um, I read a lot of Shirley Jackson. And I feel like she definitely came out in this, in the eeriness of it, in the creepiness of it. Mm. And I'm equally wondering, you know, could this be a film or a short story or a short film? Yeah. I think there's a lot there. And it's the best story, the simple concept. And that definitely helped to hear. So I'll see where I can get with it. Yeah. Thank you ever so much for your time. This has been really interesting, Athena. No worries. That's a good thing about being an actor. We repeat ourselves a lot. <laughs> on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we enthusiastically lob the ball at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport first of all happy new year this is the first jenny off the blocks in which i've addressed you personally dear listener because interviews you know so we're cracking straight on with the australian open which started on monday the main reason we've been hearing about the australian open this year is because of poor old novak djokovic who was unceremoniously deported from the country after a really really long-winded visa situation you'll have heard all about it already no doubt and if you haven't google it we're not really here to talk about the dudes after all though i will say i don't think anyone comes out of this looking great if i'm honest fair play i think it's reasonable to expect visitors to a country to adhere to the same rules as citizens of the country i mean we can't even get our actual fucking prime minister to do that but i mean whatever i also think the australian government have politicized the jeff out of the situation and i'm not sure it makes them look all that classy either to be fair also who knew, while all this attention was on Djokovic, that another player, admittedly lesser-known Czech doubles player Renata Vorokova, was also deported before the tournament began. 
Similar kind of situation. The 38-year-old was also initially allowed to enter the country and had actually already even played another tournament in Melbourne, having been granted a medical exemption from the mandatory COVID vaccination required to enter Australia and ended up being deported on Saturday. She said she was treated like a criminal and made to undress during her interrogation and detention. The Women's Tennis Association have given her full backing and said that she followed the correct rules and procedures. Anyway, I'm recording this on Tuesday. There have been two days of the tournament. You're listening to this after Wednesday. As ever, I can't time travel. Don't at me. We are where we are so far. On the women's side of the draw, a couple of upsets, as is customary. Petra Kvitova, 21st seed, was knocked out by Sarana Kirstia. 16th seed, Angelique Kerber was taken out by Kaya Kanepi. 21st seed Leila Fernandez, who you'll remember was a finalist at last year's US Open, fell to Australian wildcard Madison Inglis. And 18th seed Coco Goff, another big name on the tour, was sent packing by Chang Wang. Other big names to watch, Simona Halep is through, as is Naomi Osaka, who missed one of the earlier tournaments in Australia. And Australia's Ashley Barty is also through. So too is our very own Heather Watson, but you want to know about Emma Raducanu, don't you? Okay, so Raducanu was forced to pull out of the Abu Dhabi exhibition tournament in December after contracting COVID, and for a while it looked as if she might miss the Australian Open as well, as her recovery took a bit longer than expected. But she's played her first match and beat American Sloane Stevens, bageling her in the first set 6 love, dropping the second set 6 2, and winning the deciding set 6 1. It's a really competent and indeed confident start and as ever I'm excited to see how the tournament unfolds for her. She faces Montenegro's Danka Kovinic in the next round. I'm not worried for her but if things go as we expect and they often don't in the women's draw, she'll be up against Simona Halep in the third round. Halep had a bit of a crappy end to last year and fell down the singles rankings to 15th but she's looked good at the start of this new season and that will be one hell of a match if they are both on good form. Now obviously as I've just said we're not here to talk about dudes but still you want to know about Andy Murray right? And I'm here for it. He beat 21st seed Nikolaus Basilashvili and lives to fight another day in Melbourne. Dan Evans is also through in case you're interested. Unbelievably he's the 24th seed and he beat Belgium's David Goffin. While we're on the subject of the Murrays I'm delighted to tell you that Judy Murray's Driving Force series which I spoke to her about the first series of last year is back for a second. I unapologetically love Judy Murray, so I'll be tuning in to watch her chat to the likes of Maggie Alfonsi and Tracy Neville. And in even better news, it's going to be broadcast on ITV this year, so anyone with a telly can watch it. Lovely stuff. It's already started, but if you missed the first episode, you can catch it on the ITV Hub or the next episode on ITV4 at 8pm on Mondays or 10.45 on ITV1 on Tuesdays. Finally, it would be remiss of me not to mention that Chelsea women's manager Emma Hayes has won Best Women's Coach at FIFA's imaginatively named The Best Awards. She beat Luis Cortez, now head coach of Ukraine women, but previously Barcelona women, and Serena Wiegmann, current England manager and former Netherlands boss, to the title. Congratulations to Emma Hayes. Is it weird how much I talk about her yet? Have any of you called the police? That is all from me this week, and I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey. Hello. You had the choice this week, so I'm here to ask the eternal question. 
Did you fuck my wife? <laughs> did you fuck my wife? Did, did you fuck my wife? Yeah, this week we watched Waiting for Guffman. Or as Hannah likes to say it, Waiting for Guffman. No, no, you say it like Guffman. Like he's like a... Like a, su- like a superhero. Like a superhero. Okay. Yeah. Not Guffman. <laughs> like Batman. Yeah. Batman. <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> Waiting for Guffman. Christopher Guest's mockumentary set in the world of community theatre, or AMDRAM, as we term it on this side of the Atlantic. And by term it, I mean avoid it with every fibre of my being. Fucking A, AMDRAM. Anyway, back to waiting for Guffman. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> After screenings at the Toronto and Boston Film Festivals in late 1996, it finally received a US theatrical release on January the 31st, 1997. Now, Waiting for Guffman never got a theatrical release in the UK. In fact, the only other country in which it did receive a theatrical release was Australia, and not until September 1997. Twelve years after This Is Spinal Tap, and I'm going to put that out there, that that is the greatest mockumentary ever made, directed by Rob Reiner and starring Christopher Guest, alongside Michael McKean and Harry Shearer, Waiting for Guffman marks Guest's mock doc directorial debut, but already stars many of the comedic rep company that became guests ensemble cast stalwarts, namely co-writer Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, Fred Willard, Bob Balaban, Michael Hitchcock and Larry Miller. Sadly, no Jennifer Coolidge, Jane Lynch or John Michael Higgins, but worth noting that Michael McKean and Harry Shearer are there in spinal tap spirits, given they co-wrote the songs with guests. So I guess a caveat here is that I bloody love Christopher Guest. I love Dimwit lead guitarist Nigel Tufnell. I love six-fingered sadist Count Rugen. I love A Mighty Wind. I love Best in Show. And I love the fine line that Guest tiptoes between affection and ridicule, light and dark, in whichever little hermetically sealed world he decides to inhabit and dissect. I haven't, however, seen Waiting for Guffman before. Anyway, as with all guest mockumentaries, the majority of the dialogue is improvised to fit around Guest and Levy's story, a process Guest compares to jazz, saying, you know the basic melody and the key changes, but it's how you get from one change to the next that matters, and you don't know in advance how you're going to do it. Now, you may have guessed by the fact I mentioned Waiting for Guffman didn't get a UK theatrical release that it did not blow the box office away, and you'd be correct with it taking just $37,990 on its opening weekend and earning $2.9 million at the US domestic box office against a production budget of $4 million. I'm not great at the maths, but that's not great maths. And yet, critics loved it, and the film boasts a 91% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. What's more, it's gone on to become a beloved cult smash. And, perhaps most importantly, certainly for me, Jane Lynch has said her admiration of Waiting for Guffman is what made her want to work with Guest on Best in Show. Before I give a quick rundown of the plot, Jen, Hannah, are you into Christopher Guest's work and have you seen Guffman before? I have seen Best in Show, which I really, really, really enjoyed, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I've seen anything else he's he's done i don't think i actually knew who he was prior to watching this yesterday have you never seen this This is final Final no i've never seen it wow it's just never come up well roll on 2024 where we can rate or date it (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i did really i really enjoyed best in show but i did not know that he had done like all these other films in the same style i had no idea okay hannah yeah, I love Christopher Guest. I had never seen this. In fact, 
if you'd asked me to write a list of his films, I probably wouldn't have even remembered that this one existed mm-hmm. because, well, when it does, when it doesn't get a theatrical release, it then doesn't get ordered many times in Blockbuster, and you know that's how we yeah, watch totally. stuff. So, so no, but I mean, I completely love Christopher Guest's stuff. I do like Best in Show, and yeah, Mighty Wind, obviously. This is Spinal Tap is the king, but I would I would say this is actually pretty damn close. I fucking loved oh. it, but we will get onto that look later. Scattering a powder before I've told her to get it wet. <laughs> okay, the plots. We are in Blaine, Missouri, a small town with claims to fame, namely being the still capital of America and the site of a flying saucer landing in 1946, during which local residents were invited on board for a potluck supper. And so, in the way of small-town America, the celebration of Lane's 150th anniversary is going to be something else. Enter Corky St. Clair, that's Christopher Guest, a flamboyant... <laughs> oh, she's off. It's such a tremendous name. Even the name is glorious. He's a flamboyant theatre director with vast experience of off, 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 off-Broadway and some intriguing methods when it comes to getting the best out of the cast of what he hopes will be his hit musical, Red, White and Blaine. If Corky's deluded about his talents, and he absolutely is, he is not alone. Ron and Sheila Albertson, that's Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara, are travel agents who have never left the town, and regular amdramas. Libby Mae Brown, Parker Posey, is a Dairy Queen employee with enviable flexibility, and Dr Alan Pearl, Eugene Levy, is the town dentist determined to discover his inner entertainer. Only high school teacher Lloyd Miller, Bob Balaban, the show's musical director, can see Corky's flaws. But no one's listening to Lloyd. They're too awestruck by Corky's past in New York. And then the ante gets upped. Corky discovers that New York theatre critic Mark Guffman has agreed to come to see Red, White and Blaine and summarily tells his cast, we might be going to Broadway. I mean, that does not help them focus. And also, will Guffman even turn up? Jen, I'm actually going to start with you. You've got yeah. a degree in theatre. Was this film triggering in any way? I don't have a degree in theatre. I've got a degree in history. Oh, did you do drama? Where have I got that from? I studied drama A-level and I did at one point go to youth theatre uh, uh, recreationally. Oh, well, in that case, my question still stands. Was this at all okay. triggering? I feel like I've w- watched a lot of shit dramatic performances some of which were my own <laughs> and was it triggering so i do i do know some am dramas as well who are like very much the type of people who you would imagine them to be and to say they take their craft seriously craft in inverted commas seriously not in inverted commas um would be an understatement so what I want to say about this film, about watching it yesterday, is uh, it's interesting the fact that you, uh, you know, it made half of its budget back in the box office. I think I might have doubled it yesterday because I'm at my mum's house at the moment and I was trying to find a way for me to pay for it, not my mum, through her Amazon Prime account. And basically what happened was we both ended up paying for it because I didn't Google <laughs> the instructions and fucked it all up. So we both had to, in the end, pay for it. So I think I've basically doubled the amount of money it's taken. And I'm not mad at it. I'm not. Okay. Hannah, what was your experience of Amdram, if any? And do you think it reflected the kind of ambitions of people involved? See, I think Amdram is glorious because I have had to watch quite a lot of it at points. And by glorious, I mean just 
how I react to Andram is how I react to this film. <laughs> there's there's something so earnest mm. about yep. it and so sort of I mean amateurish sounds like a stupid thing to say because obviously it is amateurish they are amateurs but I find that delightful and I'll be honest with you I actually really like the musical that Cork <laughs> it's amazing oh it's so good I found it delightful genuinely I think the whole thing's a delight I've seen enough of it now that I'm inured to the annoyance of it and I can just smile along and like laugh and I will, I will tell you, there was a, a great rift in our family for a while caused by Amdram because a relative of ours was in an Amdram performance and my parents went to watch it. And during one of the, it was a musical, and during one of the numbers, one of the elderly members of the cast was singing and his teeth fell out. <laughs> and my dad laughed so much. He was removed from the show because he couldn't stop laughing. He was asked to leave and it caused, uh, uh, yeah, about a five-year-long feud in our family <laughs> where several arms of it weren't speaking. Obviously, Amdram is a perfect world for Christopher Guest to enter because the heart of his comedy is performers who are not very good or successful at what they do and yet do take themselves enormously seriously and mm. earnestly. And I think he captures that silliness and deadpan and discomfort of watching people give it their all and still not getting very much in the way of results absolutely brilliantly. Yeah, agreed. But actually, outside of all of that, it is genuinely like a wonderful performance as well from Christopher Guest in this. I just, I can't, this is the first time I've seen this. So it was the first time I saw the whole film. It was the first, second and third time I watched that extraordinary pissed up Catherine O'Hara scene <laughs> in the restaurant. sweats. <laughs> and it was the first, second, third and fourth time that I saw Christopher Guest dressed up as Corky Sinclair, dressed up as a 17-year-old going away to war. <laughs> With that stupid walk-in, it is just amazing. His dancing is fantastic. He's just, he's just terrific in this. Terrific. Now then, I did want to talk about Corky because there have been people who have levelled homophobia at yes. the representation of Corky St. Clair. And he is, he is all the gay man stereotypes. And I have to obviously do the caveat that I am, I am not a gay man. I am a straight woman. But I, I would say that Blaine is casually homophobic, right? Like the scarf dance that Ron does, Fred Willard does. And he's just, yeah. you know, oh, that would be the worst thing you could ever do. I'd never do that. And so we are invited to understand why Corky might have chosen to stay closeted. And also Steve who is Michael Hitchcock, who is the pharmacist and can't actually be in the play because of the auditions happening opening hours. Yeah. He is clearly smitten with Corky. And actually, mm. in an alternate ending, Corky and Steve ended up together. So, I, th yes, I mean, it's the ending I'd have loved to see. I'm not sure I agree with those charges for what my opinion is worth on this particular instance. Well, I wonder where those charges come from, just out of interest, because if that's coming from gay people saying that, then that's one thing. But if this is just a knee-jerk reaction that you're getting a lot now of non-gay people taking offence on gay people's behalf, what I would say is, having spent a lot of time around theatres, that is a series of stereotypes. But I have actually met gay men who were a series of gay stereotypes in the arts myself, so... 
two different pieces from two different gay men saying, and they both were conflicted and said they still loved it anyway and would encourage other gay guys to watch it. I have to say, as I watched it, I thought that this would be frowned upon today. And I didn't even mean that from my own perspective. I just watched it and thought, well, this is not a gay man playing a clearly gay man and quite a stereotypically gay man. And I thought people would probably level accusations of homophobia at that today. I'm not saying I necessarily thought that myself. I enjoyed it very much, as I said, but as I watched it, I thought that would definitely happen now. I do think the joy of Christopher Guest, though, he's as I said in the, in the intro, is he does tiptoe that line between empathy and meanness. That they're not caricatures. The, the ridicule is very affectionately drawn. And I think that goes across the board for all characters. Yeah. And that's what I would say about Corky as well. Mm-hmm. So who was your favourite character? I don't know, I'm guessing it was Corky. Well, I did like Corky, obviously. I mean, if... Catherine O'Hara's fringe counts as an answer <laughs> to who my favourite character was, that it was that. But also, um, I had a lot of time for, I can't remember his name, Arquette, because I didn't think that this film would contain someone blow-drying a piss stain off the front of someone from the Waltons. But there we have it. <laughs> All that pan makeup they slap on him, it's just so ridiculous. The but, joy is yeah. that Louis Arquette, who is like the That's retired it. taxidermist who they, uh, who Corky reels in to be the narrator, is by far the best actor in the whole thing. He's yeah. incredible yeah. with his campfire yeah. tales. Jen, what about you? Oh, I do, Corky steals the whole show, doesn't he? Like 100%. I mean, I do think that Catherine O'Hara and I'm really sorry I can't remember the other guy's name but uh, the couple are brilliant they are brilliant but I just think Corky is just the the way he when he has a go at people like when he goes into that meeting and he asks them for a hundred thousand dollars and they're like our budget is fifteen thousand for the entire town sorry but (laughs) no and he calls them bastard yeah, people. Yeah, bastard people. <laughs> and walks out. And when he's having a go, I think it's the guy's dad he calls up and says he can't be in the play. Um, when he's having the confrontation over the phone. It's just joyful. It's really, yeah, I, I just think he steals it completely. So you both might be interested to know that in Christopher Guest's original edit, and they filmed... 58 hours of footage that he then edited down to 84 minutes. Wow. And in his first edit, he basically cut all of Corky out. Wow, that would have been a mistake. Mm. I, I will say Fred Willard gets some absolutely banging lines or wrote them from self, likely, yeah. if you know what I mean, because of the way it's improvised. I mean, he uh, the first thing we hear him say is, who cares about Montezuma's revenge? That's just good old-fashioned American diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> which is glorious. But then he gets the best line in it, which is when he's giving uh, Eugene Levy's character a pep talk before they go on stage. And he says... Uh, if you forget, just say a line, even if it's from a different show. <laughs> That's what I always do. I love the bit. Oh, it's just perfect. In the auditions, just um, Corky and the other guy's face as they're watching the people. Because obviously you're watching it and you're like, well, this is terrible. <laughs> like, objectively bad. And the faces that they do, which is not very good for a podcast, is like, they become like inspired by the quote-unquote talent that they're seeing yeah. it's just like it's it's really beautifully observed another fun fact though they had no idea what the auditions were going to be so they were seeing it for the first time as well <laughs> well that is that is lovely stuff i enjoy that yeah. very much 
Yeah. It is so well sketched. And I mean, it makes sense when you say they did that many hours. Because despite the fact that you virtually know nothing about their marriage, you also know everything about the marriage Mm -hmm. of uh, Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard. Everything in the subtext is there that you know about, you know, the way he treats her or the way he speaks to her. It's all dressed up in this... He tells me to deny my instincts. Yes. Lines, which are so throwaway, but uh, are really telling. And when she in- yeah. introduces herself to, not Guffman, at the end, and she introduces herself yeah. to Sheila, and he goes, oh, Mrs. Ron Albertson. And I hated yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> I hated him. Yeah. But also, he is hilarious. I don't know. Do either of you two guys watch Parks and Rec? No. I haven't seen... I've seen one episode of Parks and Rec. Having never seen this before watching it almost immediately i just thought oh a man amy poehler loves this film you can just tell that there's a really clear line in my mind between waiting for government and and parts and rec and yeah. the other one that has been stated as a really clear line is ricky gervais said you know waiting for government absolutely led to the office and filming mm. in that way and on therefore hannah i know you're a bigger fan of the american office so you know there's a line there to something you really like as well but yeah, you can you yeah. can see the legacy of Waiting for Guffman, not only in Christopher Guest's work that came after that, but also in loads of stuff on the telly. Curb Your Enthusiasm, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, the style is very, very similar, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Also, I, I was thinking about, it made me think about Drop Dead Gorgeous. I don't know which one came first. This one came first. Yeah, that's also a mockumentary about a small town and just the way that it's filmed and the sort of the way it catches sort of things that are going on in the background mm-hmm. that that's where the joke is rather than in the foreground. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I'm glad you both had a lovely time. Yeah. If I didn't have an interview later, I would have fully <laughs> cut the arms off a jumper and then made my fringe <laughs> about nine inches high for this in homage to how much fun it was to watch, Mick. Oh, I'm so glad. But I'm going to ask, so rated or dated? Oh, yeah, I mean dated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, rated, absolutely. Really, really good choice, Mick. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. It did actually make me think of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and yet I still liked it. Okay. What I said about... You know when Rebecca de Mornay is supposed to be really sinister and we can see that, but the people that she's with can't see it. And I think she's awful because she just looks like she smells sinister. But they are incredible actors acting badly and that is so hard to do and they properly nail it. To the point where, like Hannah said, Red, White and Blaine, I actually loved the musical. And he, in, in fact, filmed the first version of that was 40 minutes long and I would have totally watched it. And then edited it down. And they have just the right amount of it being watchable and good with the moves right and just the right amount of getting stuff a little bit wrong. It's so, so clever. Yeah. And the audience, the audience fucking love it. (laughs) And that's what the other thing that's so thoroughly charming about it. You're right. Nobody's taking the piss out of anyone in this. It's all done really sort of, yeah, really gently, really sort of. It's a ribbing rather than a piss taking. Totally. Is it your choice next week, Hannah? It is my choice next week. After this resounding success, I've gone for a bit of cinematic Marmite. Ooh. Yeah. Next week, we're going to be watching the Royal Tenenbaums. Oh. I like Marmite. (laughs) (laughs) Standard issue for all women.